You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Barrett Swanson. Uh, Barrett, could you please introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Barrett Swanson. I'm a magazine writer, contributing editor at Harper's Magazine, and the author of a new essay collection called Lost in Summerland. Um, I have that book right here. I'm holding it up to the camera. Um, the cover uh, looks nice and innocent at first, just some clouds, but then you see there's some cracks in the clouds <laughs> there. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. So um, we're going to be talking first about a piece that is not in the book, but that ran in Harper's um, a couple weeks ago, and which I really enjoyed and I found really striking and... Um, uh, I'm eager to talk to you about. So that piece has the headline, headline, The Anxiety of Influencers, Educating the TikTok Generation, this great headline. And yeah, so it's about um, TikTok uh, influencer people, and you went to uh, be among them last year. <laughs> and okay, so how did this, um, what, what was like the origin of you wanting to do this piece? Yeah, so maybe in March of 2020, right around uh, when the lockdown started, there was a there seemed to be a Cambrian explosion of these influencer houses sprouting up across Los Angeles, and it seemed like you know a, a couple weeks wouldn't go by when one of the major organs uh, was running a think piece about these uh, content houses or these influencer mansions um, and all the boozy mayhem that they were causing in Beverly Hills, Sherman Oaks, and other parts of Los Angeles. And so I um, I was between pieces at that moment and was uh, looking for the next assignment and kind of offhandedly joked to my editor that I'd be interested in doing something in part because many of my own students were interested in influencer culture and some of these TikTok uh, collab mansions in particular um, and thought it, thought it would be a somewhat fetching and charismatic idea. And um, surprisingly, she said yes without hesitation. So um, and then I started making inquiries and um, went from there. And, uh, and your piece documents how you thought maybe no one would know the houses themselves would let you do this but then one you know was very eager to participate and that it's called clubhouse ftb which stands for for the boys well, i guess it was because maybe it, i think it dissolved you say um later in the year but um how okay so i um as a geriatric millennial which maybe you are barely a geriatric millennial um I, uh, I've never actually used TikTok. I, I feel like when it came around, I felt like, well, this is for the kids and, um, I'm not going to get involved in this. And so I only see TikTok things when they go, when they're, when people post them on other social media, like Twitter or Instagram, which are the main ones I use. And the things that people post are sometimes, uh, dances, um, sometimes just like a random kind of clip that five or six years ago, someone would have just posted on YouTube, like a, seen someone captured on the street or something yeah. or uh, maybe like a kind of a prank or a skit or some or sometimes there's these clever things that involve like editing and manipulation and stuff and someone seemingly like changing their clothes in a split second or something and and yeah. then the other thing that at least early on it seemed like tiktok was good for was sort of like taking someone else's video and like 
editing it or adding your own video to it or singing over what they were doing or something. And so the recombination, mm -hmm. like remix part of it seemed to be important. And I don't know if that's still a, a big thing, but how did you, mm -hmm. so how did you encounter TikTok? How, what did you decide that you actually wanted to download the app and see what the kids are up to or? Oh God, I think it was probably concurrent with uh, learning about the collab houses. I mean, some of my students uh, were talking about TikTok or, you know, you would you'd be walking around campus and see students um, dancing in front of their phones or something like that. Um, and so my curiosity was piqued. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it, summing through the, the app, at least um, for me and initially, was to be treated uh, or to, to encounter a kind of kaleidoscope of benign idiocy, right? There's just, it's a lot of a lot of adolescent hijinks, a lot of um, silly pranks, um, skits that that um, are almost postmodern in their absence of a kind of clear narrative arc, and so much it, um, it, it has. One, another writer described it as having the grammar of a kind of inside joke that to be on to, to be on the app is to be enlisted in a community where. The longer that you're on the app, the more thoroughly or more intimately you understand uh, some of its uh, intramural references and things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I, I remember feeling really um, dizzy after my first couple times on the app, just just totally lost about how this worked and and what what its appeal was, but. Um, the weird thing about it is that its algorithm is incredibly, um, incredibly effective, incredibly efficacious at um, compelling attention. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odious intelligence, that, that <laughs> algorithm, I would say. Yeah, I've, so my understanding is that the, the algorithm, some people think the algorithm has like a preternatural understanding of what they want and you don't another part of it is that when you first sign in like you don't need to like create your own profile or like follow mm -hmm. certain people start, just start showing so you're like start showing you things you're immediately in the world and then i guess you it knows you know you can like or not like or maybe just how long you're viewing each individual video will start serving up things that things you want and you actually saw someone i follow uh posted a couple days ago something like why does TikTok think i'm into polyamory um so like the algorithm is maybe not always uh um, you know, 100% yeah. accurate, but I guess it's yeah. such that if the algorithm thinks you're into polyamory, it'll show you a lot of polyamory stuff, maybe whether you want it or not. But um, right. But then what? So okay, so the so the, these young people who um are who have you know <laughs> from all corners of the country uh move to Los Angeles to make their you know to become stars in TikTok. What what are the sort of things that that they, they do to make successful videos. Uh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the striking things about going out there is um, there were several echelons of, of influencers, I would say. Some had backgrounds in a more traditional uh, celebrity uh, culture, having grown up doing, you know, Disney shows or something like that. So a couple of the people. So the organization um, with whom I spent my time, they had a number of different influencer mansions and uh, described it to me as an influencer university at which I took um, profound umbrage, being a university professor myself. Um, 
But so they had, at the time, they had three mansions in Los Angeles, um, the first of which was called Clubhouse BH, which stood for Clubhouse Beverly Hills. And um, that was uh, tenanted by their more seasoned influencers. So people who had been in the business since they were little kids um, and now we're like 22 and 23. Apparently this is, you know, this is a seasoned professional when you're 22. <laughs> um, and then um, the the house where I spent the majority of my time was Clubhouse FDB, Clubhouse for the Boys. And this was a more of the undergraduate vibe, more of a frat uh, uh, atmosphere. And then the the final house that they had at the time was called Not a Content House. And this had a younger demographic. Um, I think the youngest person in the house was 15 or 16 at the time. And, um, right. So, I mean, there were, there were a couple of people who had, um, CVs that, that, that had your typical celebrity, um, qualifications, but many of them were coming or had dropped out of college had, um, really found a trajectory into this world and into this particular brand of fame um, pretty recently. And as far as I can tell, they possessed, you know, no superlative characteristics. These people weren't necessarily like dazzlingly talent, talented or they did, they, they, there was a, it would seem to distinguish them was an unswerving willingness to present themselves online, a kind of promiscuous self-disclosure. They were athletes of exhibitionism, essentially. Uh-huh. And, um, y- you know, uh, they would they would describe to me their daily calisthenics uh, with, re- with respect to social media, often involving posting as many as five to 10 videos a day. So they were constantly bloodhounding around for op- uh, opportunities to make content to put themselves online. And the biggest determiner of their success is least um, at least according to the influencers that I talked to was consistency, just constantly posting. And they would, they would talk about how, um, their numbers would sag whenever, whenever they took a day off or whenever they were, um, posting intermittently. Um, so what seemed to be the, the touchstone for success was, was, um, you know, constantly posting. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So it's, it is, sort you could say there's a sort of Horatio Alger aspect to it, or sort of anyone can do it. You just need to work really hard. You know, maybe you need to be a little more attractive or a little bit of a better dancer than the average 19 year old. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but it's really about, you know, uh, hard work and dedication, um, <laughs> and so forth. But I mean, so, you know, part, so this is like, this, this phenomenon is not entirely new. So part of it is sort of almost like the early days of Hollywood where, you know, people would be like discovered and then like given a makeover and a new name yeah. and like brought, yeah. you know, to do screen tests. And actually, and then there's one person actually, I just looked up who you put in your articles, like Brandon Show or something. Anyway, I was like, there's a guy named Brandon Show. So I Googled him. It looks like his last name is actually like Schoenberg or something. And so, you know, like he, he changed his yeah. name. And then some of these people have obvious, you know, nom to TikTok or whatever. Um, yeah. And so that is sort of like, you know, um, renaming Paul Newman or, or, you know, whatever from yeah, the previous yeah, century. Yeah. And then also part of it is not, you know, like Jake Paul and sort of the early YouTube influencers have been doing a similar thing of collecting people in mansions in um, the Los Angeles area and then yeah, collaborating the and, and doing this yeah. kind of stuff. And there was, there was a profile of um, David Dobrik 
uh, by E.J. Dixon that was in Rolling Stone within the past couple of weeks. It was interesting and is, you know, in the same general area as yours. And he's more a YouTube guy uh, than TikTok, I think. But also, you know, his stuff was a lot of stunts and sort of pranks, but maybe pranks that had sort of a happy ending where, like, they would just give someone on the street $1,000 or a new car or an iPod or something. But then there were some dangerous pranks and, and a guy got severely injured doing a prank. And I recommend well, that link will be below along with the links to your stuff. And so that's a good piece. But so this is, you know, it's always not super new, but then, you know, the fact that the, the app is different and it like there is something, something does seem different. How, how would you, what, is there a difference that you see between what these guys are doing and the Jake Paul, like, the, you know, YouTube 1.0 influencer people? Um, I would, I mean, I don't really know enough. I mean, I knew a little bit about some of the precursors like Team 10 and, and the, the sort of YouTube houses. Um, what strikes me uh, as with like every new iteration or every new platform, um, it seems like the technology and the industry around it, the advertising industry around it, has gotten incredibly good at figuring out how to monetize content, how to monetize eyeballs, and how to monetize followings. And so um, if there's a salient difference to me, it seems to be the number of people who are willing to pursue this seriously as a viable profession. Um, as I talk about in the piece, 54, there was a recent uh, um, research poll saying that 54% of people from the ages of 13 to 38 would, if given the chance, become social media influencers. And anecdotally, I was just I was just speaking with my very bright and charismatic eight-year-old uh, nephew and asked him what he, you know, innocently asked him, he has no idea what I write about, and he innocently <laughs> asked him uh, what he wanted to be when he grew up, and his first choice was um, a YouTuber, second choice was an engineer. So, of course, <laughs> I was you know, nudging him in full-throated tones about uh, the virtues of becoming an engineer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the, to me, that seems to be the most striking difference is just how, uh, and two, I guess, uh, how, how many other industries are inflected by the logic of social media and the logic of quote-unquote influencing. Right. And oh, and, yeah, let's, let's say that for just for a little bit later, but so you, you know, yeah. piece, the um, influencer marketing industry is projected to be worth 15 billion by 2022 and currently accounts for roughly 15% of the to total global ad spend. So the way these guys make money is through like a sponsorship or an endorsement or something. And so sometimes maybe they're doing something that's more like a traditional commercial and then maybe, or but then maybe also brand is just paying them to be shot, like drinking their hard seltzer or, or whatever it is. And so that, um, and so yeah, people are not paying them directly, I don't think. Like, you know, it's not like a Patreon sort of thing. It, it's it's more like they're being the brand, brands and other pe people who want to sell things are trying to associate themselves with these hip young <laughs> hip young people. Well, there there are I think there are different digital avenues by which um ordinary fans can reach out to these influencers and um like essentially tip them like as you would through Patreon or something like that. Or uh, solicit them to give them birthday messages for friends. Like, uh, I think I think the app is called Cameo. Oh, yeah, like, Cameo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I know that a lot of the influencers are using that as another platform by which to make money alongside some, some of them are using OnlyFans. So they've, uh, 
they've got a diverse p- portfolio, I guess. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, that's, I mean, uh, that's smart to have multiple income streams at once because yeah. these things are all sort of contingent. Then there was this whole thing where Trump threatened to ban TikTok last year because it's yeah. a Chinese company and maybe has some connection to the ruling Chinese Communist Party. That's, that's unclear to me. Um, and yeah, and so you know, uh, one thing you note is that a, um, one, uh, an influencer and his girlfriend did a, a, uh, like 10 second video for, um, a uh, fried chicken joint and they were paid like $75,000 for a 10 second video. And so that's wild. Um, and you know, more than the you know average, uh, annual earnings, uh, in the country at large. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of money to be made and, um, I see how that would attract people. And, and so, you know, getting back to maybe what the difference is, I remember like I've read profiles of the Paul brothers. I, I don't, I honestly can't keep them apart, but what, one is now like a mixed martial artist or a boxer or something now, but they kind of do. They both are. I think they both are. Yeah. Okay. So they're, they're, both been they're doing, moving out doing of like marquee fights. Yeah. They're yeah. moving out of it. Um, they both sort of seem like sociopaths and uh, <laughs> David Dobrik in this profile is sort of seems has some sociopathic tendencies, but also seems sort of like a blank. The way you painted these young people, they all seem like pleasant people. They're just sort of having fun. They're, you know, doing dances. They're uh, attempting to play pickup basketball, then maybe getting distracted and actually playing. That's a great scene in the piece. But, um, yeah, they seem less like sort of mastermind Machiavelli types that you, some of these other YouTube people become. And then there's this whole, this whole like world that's like the sub world of influencers of people like, like influencer drama. And like YouTube drama, mm. and then like people getting in arguments with each other, and people picking teams, and and a lot of these people like there's like all these makeup influencers, and they're always like feuding with each other and claiming to have betrayed each other. So it's sort of like a soap opera aspect to it, and people take various teams, and someone is the hero, and then suddenly they do like a heel turn, and they're, they're the villain, yeah. and so everyone yeah. hates that person, and then you know, so it's like there's this constant churn around it. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah, it's it. So anyway, the, yeah, the way you describe these kids, they seem like, you know, nice, you know, nice young, young people, more or less. Would you, would you agree with that? Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, they were the, the ones uh, whom I met were incredibly genial, charismatic young people who, for the most part, seemed right minded, uh, at least in certain respects. Uh, and, you know, as a, there were moments in which, um, as I say, you know, it's a, their daily life is a kind of buffet of hedonism. You know, they're, they're drinking White Claw, they're going on yachts, they're dancing, they're playing video games, uh, they're, you know, going shopping and purchasing $1,000 prestige sneakers on, uh, you know, Rodeo. And, um, you know, they, they're living lives of um, incredible and garish luxury. Um, but around them is a scaffolding that is encouraging them, okay, a kind of corporate or financial scaffolding that is encouraging them to behave in these most, these like most ridiculous and inane ways. Right. So I guess that that's, that's the thing that ended up striking me as pernicious is that the, many of the influencers with whom I spoke were, um, impressively trenchant and self-aware about the, the fundamental weirdness of the ecosystem in which they were, in, um, they found themselves and um, more more glaringly inimical to me was the the structure around them and the the kind of cultural logic that was encouraging them to conceptualize their sense of self and self-worth 
um, via the size and echelon of their followings and their ability to monetize themselves um, and their whatever whatever we want to describe as their daily existence. And so, um, yeah, no, they they were generally kind um, and didn't didn't know there was no as far as I could tell there was no Machiavellian subterfuge. Uh, there, you know, I think some of them were, you know. <laughs> yeah, there was. They were guileless in in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. They they a lot of them seem sort of like starstruck at themselves or something. Like you know, they're mm. they're shocked by like what is happening and you know how they're able to make you know ten thousand dollars by goofing around in a day or like being mobbed at the mall or something. This pre you know pre pandemic. Um, and so I um, a line that stands to me. This is a quote from one of the influencers named Brandon. He says. It's like waking up every day and coming up with a school project. Like you're trying to impress your teachers. You're trying to impress everyone who watches the video and you want everyone to like it. You don't want to post anything that doesn't represent you. And if society's standard is us as being the chosen ones, as being good looking kids or whatever, as being the new entertainment and there's standards to it, everything you post has to be likable. Uh, so that's, I mean, interesting and sort of, I guess that's sort of disturbing. Is, is, you know, like we are the chosen one sort of thing. It's creepy, but, <laughs> but also you talk about how they have this, there's sort of like a blandness to it and they don't want to talk about politics. Mm-hmm. They don't want to, you know, they want to have like the, a mass um audience and as many likes as possible so that's maybe a little different than like other spheres oh, oh you know you can think like like on youtube there's a lot of like very political content there's a lot of conservatives who thrive on youtube and so you know part of that is like alienating some group of people on purpose to attract you know people who don't yeah. like that that group to you so this does yeah. seem somewhat different and yeah and they're yeah they're they're like we're working hard to come up with all this goofy stuff to do um and, and yeah, so, and then can you just talk about the scene with the basketball, the basketball game? Cause I thought that was very Well, yeah, interesting. if I can just comment, comment too, like, I mean, I, you know, he was, he was describing, um, you know, these uh, putative strategy sessions that during which they were coming up with these ingenious premises for content. And of course, not far behind him was a whiteboard, um, with a, a litany of potential ideas for content, which included things like tuxedos and skydiving and roommates control my day. So it wasn't, it wasn't particularly Cortex, uh, firing stuff as far <laughs> right. as, so, as, yeah. as far as I could. Yeah. So um, they're not, yeah. They're not breaking, you know, new ground in terms of possible content that, you know, is going to revolutionize whatever, but. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to malign them for that when yeah. the algorithm is kind of rewarding it. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there were, there was any number of, um, kind of moments where you, you kind of just clutched your head and, and, um, were, were shaken by what you saw. And so, yeah, one of them was, um, trying to organize a basketball game, which they promptly gave up, uh, seemingly because they were distracted by who knows what, um, and one of the other influencers blamed it on these these short attention spans from ha- not having been in school for a while. Many of them had dropped out of college or dropped out or kind of pursued different ways of finishing their, their high school. There was a, an influencer who um, exclaimed breathlessly um, that Hitler invented sex dolls. Uh, and so, so, yeah, there was... Which is like uh, an on- online hoax from like 20 years ago or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there were there were many moments where um, there were despair-inducing evidence of just kind of like <laughs> um, a lack of critical thinking skills. And 
some of that, you know, is can, can be attributed to a cluster of college age guys hanging around, r- hanging out. Right. But, but I guess the, the, the deeper evidence or the more glaringly apparent evidence to me was, you know, a talent manager um, talking about how um, speaking in sort of evangel- er, evangelical ways about TikTok as, as this great sort of utopian uh, democratic tool by which one could have access to true and trustworthy information, whereupon he proceeded to uh, tell me about um, a video that he consumed and had become uh, an, an, an exponent of this theory. And then it was essentially, Q, it was a QAnon um, video. Oh. Um, so the absence of media literacy and the fact that many of these kids were eschewing college in order to go to LA to become influencers um, and um, missing out on maybe some opportunities that at least I teach in my university classrooms to think about um, media literacy, critical thinking skills, all the logical fallacies, all the sort of bread and butter stuff that we that we hope for in, in most democratic citizens. Um, that that was concerning to me in the extreme, mm-hmm. um, and that that's where the piece for me or the my time there began to take on a different register, I guess. Yeah, and so um, the yeah the scene with the so the scene with the basketball is sort of like they like pick teams like you know and are doing trash talk and stuff and sort of goofing around, but then like the game never actually happens. They sort of like wander away and get distracted. So that's a very you know symbolic scene of like you know. Um, the hype around something and, and then the thing doesn't even exist and they don't want to actually do the, you know, do the thing itself. It's like, just, you know, hype, hype it up. And, you know, so there's something postmodern and it's very funny about that. But then, yeah, so there's definitely a undercurrent of despair in the piece as in, as in many of <laughs> pieces that I've read uh, some of your book of essays. Um, but you, okay. So then, uh, yeah. So the other side of the piece is talking about your experiences as a college professor and you, and you teach a course called, Living in the digital age—that uh, sounds very interesting, um, and you know, uh, not something. I, I guess I was a, a little too old to ever have that sort of thing um, when I was in college. But you talk about um, the um, so uh, the pro- the sort of issues that your students are having. And let me—I'll um, well, quote again from the piece. You say. Um, uh, in the past 10 years, my email correspondence has been increasingly given over to calming down students who are hyperventilating with anxiety about grades, about their potential marketability, about their Instagram followings. Previous semester, for instance, during class on creative nonfiction, 24 by 26 students wrote about self-harm or suicidal ideation. Several of them have been hospitalized for anxiety and depression. And my office hours are no less occasions to discuss course concepts, James Baldwin's narrative persona, say, or Jim Didion's use of imagery than they were de facto counseling sessions. And so... How, what, how do you see the link between these the, the two? I mean, are these these things are related? And how, is it that everyone is you know these kids grew, grew up online and grew up with phones in their pockets, and so they're constantly feeling like they have to perform and be and they're being judged, and and that is super anxiety producing. And then some of you know some of the you know the most affable and floppiest haired kids make their way out to Los Angeles, and then become stars where it's like everyone else is is miserable stuck in this stuck in this loop how do you how, how do you how do you see the link between these things i mean it's certainly multifactorial right like there's there's no way in which i would say that the the um the exclusive villain is uh social media as such in fact i would i would argue that it's um bound up with a certain idea 
of personhood that um, has been inculcated into us via neoliberal capitalism, where we're all made to become brands, essentially. And um, I think social media is a, a pixelated distillation of that logic, and it's an accelerant of that logic. But it's not it's not necessarily the root cause of it. But I think that you're right. The um, the sort of ambient pressure to constantly post online and to present oneself online to broadcast one's daily life, um, particularly as a young person whose sense of self was forged in the kiln of uh, public observation, right? The great Sauron's eye of social media. Um, and I do think that that's soul withering to a lot of my students, at least they attest as much to me um, that there is, there's, constant and um, real pressure to construct a virtual avatar um, and they become custodians of their own brands. And, and that's, that's, I guess that was the moment in the piece for me when I began to understand that um, the thing that I found sad, saddening during my time in Los Angeles wasn't so much this um, I guess it was it was bound up with this logic that that all, that all of us are kind of performing in some way before the algorithms, right? That we're, that we're bowing, as I say in the piece, we bow before the altar of the algorithm, even if the angle of our pose is different, even if the particular flavor of our performance um, takes different permutations, um, we're all still beholden to it, and we're all. Um, questing for relevance on these multinational tech platforms. And so I think the, if there is, if there's a sort of existential anxiety that permeates the piece, it's that it's, what does it mean that, that um, what does it mean to measure our success, our sense of worth, or to tutor our young people in the idea that the way that you measure those things is, is via these, these social media um, barometers, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you, yeah, and you tie this into um, the phrase you use is the Yelpification of the Academy, and you know, sort of the idea that um, you know, part, you know, you are you are being rated by your students at the end of the semester. I mean, that's not something new, but you know, there's mm -hmm. there are these. What's the website where you is it just called ratemyprofessor.com or something? Um, Rate my professors, yeah, yeah. So there's like that is somewhat new, and then I guess you're feeling. You know, you're you're within yeah the world of this also, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yeah, then there's no we can't escape from the you know capitalist society or the the algorithms at this point. Yeah. Um. So one one thing you didn't um, I don't think in the essay mentioned is uh, the parents of mm. the either your students or the uh, TikTok influencers. Did you is that a purposeful thing that you didn't want to talk to them because like I'm thinking the Dobrik piece. He talks to Dobrik's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's more, that's more a profile of one single person, talks to, right. you know, talks to his parents, the parents are, I think, are immigrants, and they sort of didn't understand what their son was doing, but they saw he was making money, so like, okay, that's, that's good, but, you know, I, if there's a 19, 20-year-old, and they say, you know, mom, dad, I'm, I'm dropping out of Texas A&M to go live in a hype house, or whatever, a collab house in Los Angeles, you know, what, are the parents like, okay, great, like, have fun, or are they like, you know, hell no, you gotta finish your degree first or whatever. And, 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 and yeah, just, I mean, these are mostly legal adults, so they can do what they want. But, um, you know, 
but how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it ran the gamut. I think there, were, there. Were, I think there were parents who were more explicitly trepidatious. There was um, one of the influencers in the the younger house, the not a content house. Actually, um, it was it was funny. She was sixteen. Her her father um, and and was living in Los Angeles, living in this house, producing content for this company, and eventually. Um, or her father basically required her to come home to Texas to to play for a varsity volleyball team, right? So like this incredibly, this weird, almost this weird enjambment of like the extraordinarily banal and <laughs> this like pyrotechnic, uh, glittery LA industry, right? So there was, there is, um, there are parents who I think, um, yeah, we're we're a bit wary of of the industry, and then there were stories of parents, you know, there. There were influencers affiliated with Clubhouse at the time that um, whose parents would show up in their their child's TikTok videos, um, just grooving along to their kids. And I think with a kind of devil may care insouciance, they were just excited and were you know encouraging their kid to I, I don't know uh, it, it wholly embrace this youthful moment, uh, this kind of youthful exuberance, and to rake in as much cash as they could. And take advantage. And right. I mean, that's whatever. I'm not. I'm, I'm no position to assess how anybody parents their kid. But um, to me, that was that was eye popping. I'll say. Uh-huh. And there's so there's a scene in the story where the guys convince you to participate in one of their dance videos, and then you talk about what it felt like knowing because you know they have these super popular accounts, and so if you're on it, then you know millions of young people are going to be seeing it very shortly and sort of the you know the how that played out within your own psychology and um <laughs> yeah so you can see how the, you know the parent is you know the you can see how the parent is like well let's just have some fun and let's dance around and and participate yeah. in this stuff as well because you know i've never gone viral to to the millions extent but even when you do something and it's getting like some attention it, it's like a a rush and then you know what are you left with afterward is another question but it you know, certainly yeah. feels exciting, and if you're doing a cool dance or something, then um, you know that's that's yeah. fun. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean the 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 yeah the dopamine hit that one experiences upon seeing something. I think it would, you know it's tens of thousands of, of viewers within I think minutes of it going on, and you as I say in the piece, uh, at that point it was more attention than I'd ever see from my writing. So it was just this strange, it was just this strange moment, um, just hunkered down in the bathroom watching, reading the content or the comments rather. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, um, so I think when I reached out to you, um, see if you want to come on and talk about the piece, I think I said it reminded me a bit of uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, some of his nonfiction pieces from the nineties and then rereading. But so I still think that, so I've been rereading it before I came on. Um, I, it, parts of it, uh, remind me of Joan Didion. Those are, of course are two like iconic essayists, but especially the ending and the ending of, um, Didion's, uh, slashing towards Bethlehem where the, um, you know, there's a, a baby or a toddler or something who had like burned himself on a radiator and then is chewing on, uh, an electric cord as the hippie parents are looking for, you know, some hash that fall between the floorboards. It's sort of this like apocalyptic, uh, vision of like the sixties turning to total mm-hmm. shit and like, you know, societal decline. Obviously there wasn't an apocalypse or anything, but it's this very, um, you know, in the moment, very harsh view of what the yeah. like height, Ash- height, Ashbury, hate Ashbury, um, 
see what it was like. And then there's sort of a similar tone of Doom, it seems like, especially I'm rereading it, I don't know why the second time hit me more. Uh, So first of all, do you we think about either of those writers when you're putting this piece together? Um, And second of all, like, like, how do you think about the Doom, (laughs) the Doom aspect of of this whole thing? I mean, those are those are important writers to me, so I think they're always, you know, they're in the DNA, I guess. So they, they were very important to me when I was becoming a young, uh, when I was a young writer, becoming, um, doing, doing magazine work. And I was, I was thinking about Sashing Turn to Bethlehem um, in particular, because just it's like such an iconic essay and I was going to Los Angeles right. and this is, you know, Didion is, um, you know, there's no one better at kind of chronicling the psychic flavor of that city as far as by my estimate estimation in fact i think an early iteration of my piece included some joke about how didion called her particular neighborhood in la the senseless killing neighborhood or a friend had referred it to that and that i found myself in the senseless memeing neighborhood and um <laughs> uh so yeah i was i was I, I don't know i mean the doom thing it's like i yeah, yeah. I mean, the it's hard not to it's hard not to. I guess I was writing the piece at a moment when I was particularly um, pessimistic about the future. This was, um, you know, uh, at a moment when fifty thousand Americans were being diagnosed with COVID every day. I, I flew into Los Angeles, and the minute we crossed into the state, the 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 sky was filled with smoke and you know we could see the fires from the plane and so there was an apocalyptic tinge immediately upon just descending into the state's airspace um yeah i think and, i mean ash is like ash is raining from the sky in one part of yeah, the yeah. story while the kids are all like it was so bizarre about. it was so bizarre i mean yeah i mean it was I mean, it was almost um yeah it was it was um very it it left me just full of um great great sadness i think um and i I guess i stand by um most of my pessimism i mean there's no way in which i think tiktok is the you know one of the four horsemen or anything like that but i i do think that the logic or the logic um that that undergirds that particular ecosystem and the logic that i see infiltrating um, higher education and that I see infiltrating a lot of different industries le- leaves me with um, with tremendous fear, I guess, about um, how we're defining personhood and what we how we measure self worth and you know, I mean, the the mental health crisis in this country is is epidemic. Um, adolescent beds and psych wards are facing um, shortages, right? I mean, I, I think that there's an extent to which we can either, um, you know, reckon with some of the social and cultural forces that I think contribute to these things, or we can continue to persist in the notion that, that the depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation is merely a genetic misfortune, which is, I think, often the narrative that we, that we hear in the culture. And so, um, and then, you know, every day there's a relentless bombardment of images, um, offering lush evidence of the, the extent to which, um, the Anthropocene is, is, is here. And, um, yeah, I mean, 
there, there's a great cause for fear. I mean, there's, um, there are things, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't have very many warm, fuzzy feelings, unfortunately, but, um, you know, <laughs> the, I, you know, I was obviously pleased by, uh, you know, Biden getting elected, um, or, or winning the election, but, um, you know, I, I, I have so much fear about that epistemological crisis in this country, some of which I, I talk about in, in that essay, that I'm fearful for 2024. I'm fearful about deep fakes. I'm fearful about, um, yeah, just what, what our politics is going to look like. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, just on that, on that last point, you know, the, um, y- you know, I guess there was an idea that people who grew up in the digital world would have like a really good bullshit detector because so much they're supposed to so much crap online that they have to know it's fake. But then you're set and then you point out that there's, you know, these ki- the kids treat TikTok like, oh, this is the mm-hmm. real truth. And then you note that there's maybe it was the guy you mentioned previously who had this QAnon video he was mm-hmm. into. He was like, well, this has got gotten deleted a lot of times. So this must be true. Um, like, mm-hmm. you know, this is what they don't want you to know. So that, and yeah, so the deep fake part of it and the misinformation, mm-hmm. um, that I guess is not going to get better. And maybe the, you know, um, some of the platforms have moved to fight this stuff, although not there, it might be an impossible problem and banning people like yeah. Trump himself or the QAnon influencer types um would maybe help with that right. but um it's not yeah they're not uh, it, it's hard to do and they're not working very hard to do it anyway um okay so i encourage everyone to read this piece it's very interesting i think it's one that people are gonna be looking back on you know years from now to as a what life was like in the very strange year of 2020 so um oh thank you that's, so that's very flattering well, yeah, so people should check it out, and, and it, like, it has a great headline, like I said, I, I, uh, title to it. Uh, did you, did you come up with that one, or is that, was that an editor who, uh, the anxiety of influencers? No, it was actually, um, I was having a conversation with a friend, and we were kind of, uh, coming up with possibilities, and yeah, that, that one stuck. Uh, well, it's classic. Okay, so then, um, after I read this piece, I realized that I read another piece by you, um, in the past two years or so called lost in summerland. And then that's the title you gave your essay collection. And, um, I wasn't able to get through all the essay, all of this in time, but I keep on reading it, uh, because I've been enjoying it so far, but the piece, so lost in Summerland, the, the piece ran in atavist and we'll include that link also. And it's, a, I, I, maybe I, we don't need to get into it fully, but it's a very fascinating piece. It's about you and your brother who had a traumatic brain injury when he was a young man. And, this spiritualist uh, retreat or what would you call it? Locust sort of a town that was like founded by spiritualists and continues to attract that type of person called Lilydale. And it's in like far Western New York. Um, Yeah. And so, yeah. Do you want to just talk just a little bit about that piece and maybe we'll just link to it and encourage people to read it because I found it fascinating. Yeah, sure. So, um, my brother in college had a traumatic brain injury. He suffered seven brain contusions, had a nine-month-long recovery, and uh, was able to salvage his memory and in his intellectual capacities and mostly recover. But he, um, in the decade or so after that event, he started professing to experience psychic phenomena, uh, having premonitions of things that eventually panned out, um, all of which I regarded as uh, kind of uh, dubious in the extreme, we'll say, to put it mildly, um, because this was my older brother, who's kind of a, 
um, a bit of a, of a showman. He's an incredibly charismatic um, person. And the frequency with which he started uh, experiencing these psychic phenomena began to distress him. And he asked me if I wanted to go to this place called Lilydale, which, as you were saying, is this um, community in upstate New York, home to 275 psychics and mediums. Um, and every summer they open their gates to uh, tw uh, roughly 22,000 tourists who come in for seances, astrology walks, uh, um, psychic readings, automatic drawing classes, basically a, a whole smorgasbord of possible woo-woo activities. <laughs> and uh, we went there, we went there and um, in large measure, because Andy was, um, my brother Andy was um, wanting answers. And um, I, I think too, he wanted to, to kind of prove to me that these things were legitimate. And um, I guess during the course of that experience, we, you know, we did all manner of, of spiritualist activities. We did automatic drawing. We had psychic readings. We attended seances. We saw something called apportations, which is where a medium uh, in commune with spirits produces uh, supernatural phenomena, this kind of effluvia out of their mouth. Um, sometimes it takes the form of ectoplasm uh, and sometimes it takes the form of like coins and rubies and things. So obviously uh, there's much to suspend one's disbelief there. And I think that um, some of the people, you know, were very, very clearly, I think because it attracts so many different types of uh, people and maybe some out there uh, demographics um, in terms of their spiritual beliefs, uh, there were people, I mean, a lot of it I, I, I regarded as BS, right? And, um, but there were instances or moments where I, as a cold-hearted materialist, kind of uh, shed my skepticism. And there were things that happened, um, particularly with my brother, that made me think that something else was going on. Um, and I mean, this this might be an, an, a way to kind of transition into some of the other essays in the in the book. Um, but essentially, what happened was we went to we did this activity. We went to an eight hour long workshop called "Enhancing Your Mediumistic Skills" um, with this guy named Reverend Michael Shane. And during the course of that workshop, we did something called billet readings. And billet readings are where a spiritualist will put over their eyes some sort of uh, blindfold. In this case, it was silver dollars and then duct tape and then a bandana and then an eye mask. So it was this stratified blindness. And everyone else in the room, each person came up, including myself, went up to the front of the room and had this, uh, this blindfold, these layers of blindfold put on them. And everyone else in the room wrote down on no cards, a number on one side and on the other side, a random question. And thereupon, the person would have to extract note cards from this wicker basket and try to divine what was on either side of the card. And everybody in the room, um, excluding myself, uh, averred that they were that they were mediumistic or psychic in some way. Um, but most of them performed pretty badly, I would say. You know, occasionally they would get a number right, um, or you could construe their answer. Um, as being somewhat uh, close to what the question was. But my brother um, got about 78% of the, 
the the things are right. I have it on video and audio. Um, and they were right in ways that um, they weren't like exact, but they were they were like, you know, um, he would be he would say something like, uh, the number one and 2019. And the question would be, what will be the big news story for 2019? And the number is one. So he would get, he would get approximately correct. And it was, um, it kind of left me wrong footed. And so we, um, left that workshop around midnight that night. And, um, he proceeded to tell me, um, that he had access to knowledge of something which I hadn't told anyone before, um, not even my wife. And that was um, thoughts of wanting to kill myself um, maybe a year or so prior to our trip. And uh, the, the claim of having that, that knowledge, um, I mean, was, was quite affecting, right? Yeah. Um, but um, but also made me walk out of that experience with um, a broader sense of what what kinds of knowledge is accessible. I guess there's no way in which I you know I was a convert to spiritualism or I, I don't you know I don't believe it or I don't subscribe to the the idea that spirits are among us necessarily. Um, but I do I do have a, a more tolerant um, or more patience with some theories about. Um, what sorts of knowledge is accessible. Uh, but that, um, that I think is a springboard into talking about the book generally, which is that it's really an outgrowth of that time in my life, right? Of um, being near lethally depressed and really reaching some sort of terminus about um, what has meaning and what doesn't have meaning and, and how, um, I should go about, I mean, really looking for reasons to stay alive. That was kind of <laughs> the, where I was at when I started the book and when I started doing many of the essays. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, well, thank you for laying that out. And, but there's a lot more in the piece. And so the pieces will include the link. It's on Atavist. It's the title piece in this. And um, it's, it's a really great piece that stuck, stuck with me, um, you know, Thanks. long after I read it. Um, and so the, um, it did, I mean, the, the sort of, yeah, there's the link, you know, these are like pieces you wrote for various mm. magazines and other publications over a certain time. And well, one of the links is that you are often a, like, sort of, you know, you're a participant in the events that are happening to some extent, it's, yeah. you know, in sort of a new journalism way, but also another one is, yeah, your, um, undercurrents of depression and, um, mm. think about suicide and, um, yeah, and the, like a general sense of despair. Um, and mm. then, so, so Summerland is... It's worth, a funny book, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I wouldn't call it a beach read, but, um, it's, it's enjoyable. It's, yeah, it's not, you're not stuck in the depths of, of despair okay. or anything, and you're going to different places and encountering different unusual people, a, um, you know, you go to a, one of these like retreats that's for men who are having problems with their you know 
what, I mean, what would you, what would you call that that event? It's They're not reckoning ma- with their masculinity, trying to get in touch with their emotions, and and thinking, uh, you know, the the retreat weekend. So it was um, across the last four or five years, there was a, a kind of um, an eruption, I'll say, of, uh, of uh, men's retreats. There's kind of renewed interest in. Um, men's groups as a possible tonic to toxic masculinity and a way to sort of uh, get men to get in touch with their emotions and um, kind of interact with fourth wave feminism. And so Harper's uh, commissioned me to go, commissioned a piece for me to go to one of these um, retreat weekends. Um, And whereupon I was engaged in small group and large group exercises. And um, basically it was this kind of festival of catharsis. We were enjoined to vent and cathart at high decibels. There was an anger ceremony in the woods. There was something called holotropic breath work, um, which basically involved hyperventilating for 20 minutes until people began to have these effusions of very intense emotions, either laughing hyenically or you know weeping at um kind of distressing volumes and um but without any sort of kind of intellectual discussion about the ways in which masculinity is undergirded by certain um problematic narratives in the culture regarding capitalism and patriarchy and and these sorts of things and you know there was no there was no kind of discussion of that so um yeah and yeah you're right i mean the, the pieces end up the pieces end up having a kind of immersive quality. A lot of the pieces, at least the journalist, more journalistic pieces end up having a kind of immersive quality. There's something George Plimpton-ish, I think about some of them going in and just, um, and that's part of the design too. I think I'm, I'm trying to reckon with, uh, um, I'm trying to make myself available to understand what would attract a person to these communities or these different ideologies. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, so so some some pieces are you going out into the world. Some are more essay, personal memoir, essayistic, mm-hmm. a, a, descri- a separate essay that's about um, your your brother's the attack that it, that severely injured your brother. Mm-hmm. What, what that was like, um, and the yeah. So I, there is this sort of, I mean, the one of the linkages seems to be people trying to you know, escape their misery and failing. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I, like I, said, I didn't finish, so maybe there's a hopeful ending, but um, that did, so you were very critical of the men's, it's not men's rights, it's, you know, the, the mass, masculine selfhood the men's group. stuff, yeah, yeah. And, and then you have a, a portrayal of a um, guy who uh, was a, a rap war veteran who became an anti-war activist and then started a, an organic farm um and that was trying to employ other veterans and like sell mm. produce to veterans and maybe the first would be like subsidized to the to the veterans mm. and it was and just like all of his difficulties with mm. everything so yeah people are trying trying to escape you know the various larger systems that have harmed them or oppressed them or something yeah. and then um but you're not going for the feel good, <laughs> the feel good conclusion here, um, at, at least in the ones that I read. Although you know the the essay with your brother is not is it was somewhat it's not we call it feel good, but you're it seems like you're grasping it ends yeah towards yeah, something. Yeah. But uh, um, 
And you also had this interesting piece about a guy who was uh, the Venus. Uh, the Venus project. The Venus yeah. guy who was sort of this visionary, like, Buckminster Fuller type guy who yeah. conceived a different way to order human life, but ended up sort of living as like a weird guru in this like place in the middle of uh, like central Florida or something. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, do you, do you see that, that there's all these people like grasping for something and then at the end, they're not, yeah. they're not satisfied. Yeah. I mean, the, that's right. I think um, in many ways, I'm interested in the ways that um, the, the proposed antidotes to some of the sadness and despair that I myself was feeling or that I've noticed in my students or in my friends ends up perpetuating uh, some of those those feelings, right? And um, so, I mean, it's, 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 take for instance, the Venus Project one that was um, run by a then when I, when I went there, I think he was 99 years old. He's since passed away. Um, but a 99-year-old uh, self-professed uh, social engineer who wanted to replace capitalism with a resource-based economy and have technology run and um, oversee um, the division of resources and basically produce this utopia create, uh, kind of governed by algorithms. And um, I got interested... Oh, it's, you know, it's interesting to think the, the algorithm, you know, uh, since the uh, the TikTok piece was not within this, not included in this book because it just came out this year, but thinking about the algorithms yeah. uh, in both yeah. senses. And yeah, so this guy wanted to, you know, there'd be like a genius computer at the center, like yeah. laying out. So it was sort of like communism, but like the computer would decide and there'd be no like money or gold or valuables or anything. Ever. Like the, the resources would just all be like distributed equitably, yeah. equitably by this like super intelligence. So there's, it's, there's like an As Isaac Asimov story that sort of like this i right. think but um and then yeah. this guy built not what i mean would you call it like a commune but there were he was the only one there kind of thing it was yeah yeah it was like a 22 acre compound and he was you know he was an industrial designer so he he, he had come up with a prototype for prefabricated houses and stuff and on his compound in venus florida which is in central florida maybe in a couple hours north of miami he had these huge portobello capped shaped domes in which he and his staff members lived and he wanted it to serve as a kind of Epcot um, like model of what this world could possibly look like. And interestingly, the domes were shaped in that way to be hurricane resistant. Something about the torque of the winds made, um, made it difficult for the, uh, for the houses to be picked up if they were, I don't, I don't huh. know. Um, so super interesting guy. And I got in, interested in him because I saw some YouTube video of him at an Occupy Miami rally in 2011, in which he was enjoining the protesters to stop protesting the stock market because it wasn't going to do anything that he that they needed to, quote unquote, fundamentally reimagine the culture, which I found kind of daring and provocative. And after, you know, bloodhounding around on the internet for a little while, stumbled across this project and decided I would go down there. And even though, I mean, during the course of my visit, right, there was, um, there was someone from Facebook there uh, who was talking about how Facebook and some of these other tech companies were actually the ones instantiating some of Fresco's ideas. Right. But it struck me as a kind of searing irony that um, they, of course, have no plans to jettison the capitalist uh, system that Fresco wanted to dismantle, but instead to use 
kind of the jargon and patna of techno utopianism to, to make profit, right? And to, um, so there's the gesture of this like utopian element um, with, with the motivation or the kind of strictly capitalist motivation. And so that, that I think is kind of uh, evocative of a lot of the pieces in, in the book where I'm interested in the ways in which many of the narratives that are, um, that we embrace um, usually come in under the sign of progressivism, that they present themselves as a, as a quote unquote good cause, um, a progressive cause, but they actually are um, in lockstep with a logic um, that perpetuates some of these very systems and inequities um, in the first place. And so how you were characterizing, I think, is, is definitely right. There's, there's an effort, I think, um, to, uh, at the individual level to escape one's feelings of deprivation or depletion or fear or lostness um, by seeking out these sort of surrogate ideologies, ideologies or affiliations um, that have sprouted up in the wake or the collapse of um, you know, the, the 20th century's grand narratives, you know, your traditional religion, traditional political ideology, those sorts of things have fallen by the wayside. And so in the, in the embers of that, I think people are, are sifting and looking for things that they can affiliate with, be it, you know, like a wellness group, be it something as banal as like CrossFit, be it techno utopianism. Um, and so, the book, um, in many ways, is my um, countenancing some of those ideologies um, and thinking about what they, whether or not they're meaningful palliatives or meaningful ways of of restoring a sense of of um, purpose and meaning in one's life. I guess. So it's really like a kind of post two thousand eight, post nine eleven. Um, account of some of the trends that have sort of proliferated in the culture I'll, I, and using myself as kind of um <laughs> kind of ruthlessly presenting my own um depression and suicidal ideation as the the um the catalyst for the, that kind of interrogation i mean yeah, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, like I, I guess I wrote another piece about this for a different magazine about uh, my frustration with the narratives around suicide and suicidal ideation and the the kind of solemn tone tones with which we talk about suicide as this 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 um, just just um, genetic misfortune, and I think that there's a way in which that obscures or elides the the some of the social and political situations or conditions that are that are actually uh, um causing um at least in my own case some of that depression mm. and some of that that despair and um so i i wanted to, i wanted the book if i mean post facto right like this is when you're writing these things i don't know that i wasn't to totally um aware of it but after the fact it occurred to me that what what the book hopefully is is a is a, a candid exploration of like what are what are the cultural narratives that are contributing to these feelings that I have and had. Um, I mean, we're, we're probably uh, towards the end of our time, so I've 
at least two more questions. And so one of them is why, so why did, okay, so Summerland is the name, and correct me if I'm wrong, the name that the people in Lilydale, the spiritualist enclave, gave to yeah. heaven, or one of their names for heaven. Um, yeah. So why did you, why did you decide that that would be the title piece of, um, of the work as a whole? Yeah, I mean, around the time that I was putting together the collection, members, this is, this was right after the 2016, or not right after, but, um, after the 2016 election. And around that time, members of the commentariat, it seemed like a, a number of people kept, um, suggesting that with the 2016 election, America had fulfilled John Adams' 1814 warning that all democracies will eventually commit suicide, right? That the conditions and the, the, the spade work of preserving a democratic society would become so um, arduous that it, it eventually it would, it would um, collapse in on itself. And um, the, the, the upshot of that was that we had entered this posthumous phase, that this was a kind of, kind of the post-democratic America, that Trump was the avatar and um, emblem of this kind of post-democratic society. Um, and resurgent facet fascism or resurgent fascist tendencies, et cetera. And um, it struck me as interesting to think about what it would mean to live in the uh, kind of democratic afterlife and that I was going to a place and a community that professed to interact with uh, energies and spirits of the afterlife. There seemed to be some sort of correspondence between uh, those two things. And then um, there is an intersection with my own life, right? Um, having having experienced uh, quite intensely suicidal ideation, um, there just seem to be um, resonances and correspondences between those three trends that I felt like were were um, maybe reflective of the book's thematic ambitions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, though, as you're saying this, I'm thinking you know one of the um, a common trope over the past four or five years was saying like we live in hell or this is a hell world mm -hmm. or geo hell. Mm -hmm. There was a book published called geo yeah. hell. And, yeah. and so, uh, Summerland is heaven or one form of heaven or the, the like world to come or something. And then, but when you're lost, yeah. you're lost in it. Um, then, you know, that's, that's a different residence. So I won't try to unpack that anymore, uh, but, um, live one more, so one more question. And so I mentioned, you know, David Foster, your essay, uh, TikTok has reminded me of David Foster Wallace. And I also noticed, uh, I haven't gotten to this one yet, but the last essay is called Church Not Made with Hands, which is a, uh, also a title of a David Foster Wallace, um, short story, I believe. And I don't know if that's, yeah. uh, if there's a, another reference to that. Um, you can tell me, yeah, yeah, the, but the, how do you, how do you see I, Wallace, you know, Wallace's influence on your work or how do you, how do you, are you, are you, do you consider yourself working within the Wallace, Wallacean, uh, tradition or? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess I there. I think he, he was such a large presence for so many magazine writers that his influence is kind of indelible. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, that essay, Church on Made with Hands, talks explicitly about that story as... Um, and, um, well, that essay is about um, a kind of cluster of books that, I, that came out um, within the last five or ten years or so that I'll deal or that all seem to have a kind of religious narrative arc. So Sheila Hetty's uh, book, How Should a Person Be? Carl Uvnosgaard's work. Um, and I talk about Ben Lerner and Tao Lin and Flannery O'Connor, Walker Piercy. And I'm, I was interested in 
how those books were really all about perspectival change, that the person was facing some sort of existential crisis or some sort of moral lostness, and they, they underwent some sort of perspectival change about um, how they were regarding the people in their life or their status within the world. And Wallace is obviously someone who um, was deeply interested in attention, right? The, the final book, Pale King, was all about um, being able to exist within boredom and, and those sorts of things. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think, you know, those writers, those magazine writers, um, you know, Didion, James Baldwin, um, you know, and even, even contemporary writers, like I think Aleph Bautman and um, Rachel Kazi Gansa are like incredible uh, magazine writers. These are people who, I guess what interested, interests me is, um, the type of writing that really excites me and, and inspires me is, is that which the, the writer is implicated somehow in the text, that, um, that they kind of go past the voguish condemnation, the easy observation, and, and move to a place of um, self-scrutiny that feels daring in some way. And so that's the, the writers that end up having the most influence on me are the ones that, that do that consistently and do that without embarrassment. Um, and that's what I myself am trying to do. And I'm not always successful, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> and I, um, so many of the people you just mentioned as, you know, premier magazine nonfiction writers are also, also wrote fiction. Um, mm -hmm. and you, you mentioned a, a, um, working on a novel in at least one of these essays. Are you still working on a novel? Are you a fiction writer? Also, um, and how do you yeah yeah i was trained as a fiction writer so i did my mfa in fiction um and then got into magazine work kind of through the back door just i like i tried one of doing one of these pieces and then i found out that i that i enjoyed the process and i and there were aspects of it that i felt i was pretty good at or um had a natural instinct for and kind of grew enamored with the process and so um yeah, but I still write fiction here and there. It's been a while. It's been a while since I've worked on uh, that novel. Um, but I've got some story, short stories in the hopper, and um, we'll see. That might be the next book. I'm not sure. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I look forward to that. And the um, yeah, the, just back to Wallace for a brief moment. You know, he um, Infinite Jest has become this cultural totem over the past you know, a few years of, of various people, you know, just a cultural signifier, basically, of the, like, you know, 28-year-old bearded guy who was, like, showing off that he read this giant book. But I, as someone who strangely got into Wallace as a teenager, um, I, his, you know, his, um, his nonfiction is, I think, better than his fiction, and especially um, that first collection, I suppose, fun thing I'll never do again, which has the uh, the title essay is about going on a cruise, and I think you know that's one of the best uh, pieces ever written in any in any genre. Uh, so if people haven't uh, <laughs> checked that one out, um, yeah, check that out and put aside the cultural, uh, you know, uh, the, all the little, you know, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the barnacles of cultural like effluvia that have attached to if and adjust and and so forth. To just check out that work because it's it's uh it's really good even just that you can just read the single essay so it's funny did it run at harper's originally i can't remember remember mm -hmm. they, might, might, they might have put it on the web um but you can get that collection okay um anything else you want to say we've gone a little over an hour 
um well i don't think so i'm i'm just real grateful for the opportunity to talk with you oh well i i appreciate you taking the time um like i said i really enjoyed the pieces i've read i i'm going to uh <laughs> i'm going to finish lost in summerland and um yeah maybe we're gonna have you back again sometime to talk about uh, something else because uh your work is really interesting and i think uh should uh people should consume it do you, are you, do you i mean do you you you're are you a social media person just uh, aside, aside from your tiktok account um are there, no, are there no, ways people no, can follow you I'm or not. should they just uh i've got a website but um no i i just um um i don't think emotionally i can handle social media so i try to avoid it if i can okay well that's wise and so um you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe emotionally, but I don't know about professionally, right? But yeah, <laughs> true. It's definitely. I mean, you talk about like hell world. Like that's the. I think that the prism of especially Twitter makes people you know think that everything is is bad. Um, and uh, okay, so people should check out your website, and the link will be below to that, and and check out the book Lost in Summerland. Okay, so thank you, thank you, Barrett. Thank you to our viewers and listeners uh, who can rate and review and subscribe and follow and all those hit the you know slam that like button and so forth um <laughs> if they if they want to or they could you know excuse themselves from the al- algorithmic system and just go <laughs> take a walk or yeah. um read a novel Definitely. or 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 do whatever they want it's it's a free country and uh it's up to you <laughs> so yeah <laughs> okay so thank you again Barrett and uh oh thanks so much